Chapter One of the Stark Monroe Letters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. The Stark Monroe Letters by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter One The Stark Monroe Letters by J. Stark Monroe. Being a series of twelve letters written by J. Stark Monroe, M.B., to his friend and former fellow student, Herbert Swanborough of Lowell, Massachusetts, during the years 1881 to 1884. Edited and arranged by A. Conan Doyle. The letters of my friend, Mr. Stark Monroe, appear to me to form so connected a whole, and to give so plain an account of some of the troubles which a young man may be called upon to face right away at the outset of his career, that I have handed them over to the gentleman who is about to edit them. There were two of them, the fifth and the ninth, from which some excisions are necessary, but in the main I hope that they may be reproduced as they stand. I am sure that there is no privilege which my friend would value more highly than the thought that some other young man, harassed by the needs of this world and doubts of the next, should have gotten strength by reading how a brother had passed down the valley of shadow before him. Herbert Swanborough, Lowell, Massachusetts the stark monroe letters one home thirtieth march eighteen eighty one i have missed you very much since your return to america my dear bertie for you are the one man upon this earth to whom i have ever been able to unreservedly open my whole mind i don't know why it is for now that i come to think of it i have never enjoyed very much of your confidence in return but that may be my fault. Perhaps you don't find me sympathetic, even though I have every wish to be. I can only say that I find you intensely so, and perhaps I presume too much upon the fact. But no, every instinct in my nature tells me that I don't bore you by my confidences. Can you remember Cullingworth at the university? You never were in the athletic set, so it is possible that you don't. Anyway, I'll take it for granted that you don't, and explain it all from the beginning. I'm sure that you would know his photograph, however, for the reason that he was the ugliest and queerest-looking man of our year. Physically, he was a fine athlete, one of the fastest and most determined rugby forwards that I have ever known, though he played so savage a game that he was never given his international cap. He was well-grown, five foot nine, perhaps, with square shoulders, an arching chest, and a quick, jerky way of walking. He had a round, strong head, bristling with short, wiry black hair. His face was wonderfully ugly, but it was the ugliness of character which is as attractive as beauty. His jaw and eyebrows were scraggy and rough-hewn, his nose aggressive and red-shot, his eyes small and near-set, light blue in color, and capable of assuming a very genial, and also an exceedingly vindictive expression. 
A slight wiry moustache covered his upper lip, and his teeth were yellow, strong, and overlapping. Add to this that he seldom wore collar or necktie, that his throat was the color and texture of the bark of a Scottish fir, and that he had a voice and especially a laugh like a bull's bellow, then you have some idea, if you can piece all these items in your mind, of the outward James Cullingworth. But the inner man, after all, was what was most worth noting. I don't pretend to know what genius is. Carlyle's definition always seemed to me to be a very crisp and clear statement of what it is not. Far from its being an infinitive capacity for taking pains, its leading characteristic, as far as I have ever been able to observe it, has been that it allows the possessor of it to attain results by a sort of instinct which other men could only reach by hard work. In this sense, Cullingworth was the greatest genius that I have ever known. He never seemed to work, and yet he took the anatomy prize over the heads of all the ten-hour-a-day men. That might not count for much, for he was quite capable of idling ostentatiously all day, and then reading desperately all night. But start a subject of your own for him, and then see his originality and strength. Talk about torpedoes, and he would catch up a pencil, and on the back of an old envelope from his pocket, he would sketch out some novel contrivance for piercing a ship's netting and getting at her side, which might no doubt involve some technical impossibility, but which would at least be quite plausible and new. Then as he drew, his bristling eyebrows would contract, his small eyes would gleam with excitement, his lips would be pressed together, and he would end by banging on the paper with his own hand and shouting in his exultation. You would think that his one mission in life was to invent torpedoes. But next instant, if you were to express surprise as to how it was that the Egyptian workmen elevated the stones to the top of the pyramids, out would come the pencil and envelope, and he would propound a scheme for doing that with equal energy and conviction. This ingenuity was joined to an extremely sanguine nature, as he paced up and down in his jerky, quick-stepping fashion after one of these flights of invention. He would take out patents for it, receive you as his partner in the enterprise, have it adopted in every civilized country, see all conceivable applications of it, count up his probable royalties, sketch out the novel methods in which he would invest his gains, and finally retire with the most gigantic fortune that has ever been amassed. And you would be swept along by his words, and would be carried every foot of the way with him, so that it would come as quite a shock to you when you suddenly fell back to earth again, and found yourself trudging the city street, a poor student, with Kirk's physiology under your arm, and hardly the price of your luncheon in your pocket. I read over what I have written, but I can see that I give you no real insight into the demoniac cleverness of Cullingworth. His views upon medicine were most revolutionary, but I dare say that if things fulfill their promise, I may have a good deal to say about them in the sequel, with his brilliant and unusual gifts, his fine athletic record, his strange way of dressing, his hat on the back of his head and his throat bare, his thundering voice, and his ugly, powerful face. He had quite the most marked individuality of any man that I have ever known. Now, you will think me rather prolix about this man, but, as it looks as if his life might become entwined with mine, it is a subject of immediate interest to me and I am writing all this for the purpose of reviving my own half-jaded impressions, 
as well as in the hope of amusing and interesting you so i must give you one or two other points which may make his character more clear to you he had a dash of the heroic in him on one occasion he was placed in such a position that he must choose between compromising a lady or springing out of a third-floor window without a moment's hesitation he hurled himself out of the window as luck would have it he fell through a large laurel bush onto a garden plot which was soft with rain and so escaped with a shaking and a bruising if i have to say anything that gives a bad impression of the man put that upon the other side he was fond of rough horseplay but it was better to avoid it with him for you could never tell what it might lead to his temper was nothing less than infernal i have seen him in the dissecting rooms begin to skylark with a fellow and then in an instant the fun would go out of his face his little eyes would gleam with fury and the two would be rolling worrying each other like dogs below the table he would be dragged off panting and speechless with fury with his wiry hair bristling straight up like a fighting terrier's this pugnacious side of his character would be worthily used sometimes i remember that an address which was being given to us by an eminent london specialist was much interpreted by a man in the front row who amused himself by interjecting remarks the lecturer appealed to his audience at last these interruptions are insufferable gentlemen said he will no one free me from this annoyance hold your tongue you sir on the front bench cried cullingworth in his bull's bellow perhaps you'll make me said the fellow turning a contemptuous face over his shoulder cullingworth closed his notebook and began to walk down on the tops of the desks to the delight of the three hundred spectators it was fine to see the deliberate way in which he picked his way among the ink bottles as he sprang down from the last bench onto the floor his opponent struck him a smashing blow full in the face cullingworth got his bulldog grip on him however and rushed him backwards out of the classroom what he did with him i don't know but there was a noise like the delivery of a ton of coals and the champion of law and order returned with the sedate air of a man who had done his work one of his eyes looked like an overripe damson but we gave him three cheers as he made his way back to his seat then we went on with the dangers of placenta previa he was not a man who drank hard but a little drink would have a very great effect upon him then it was that the ideas would surge from his brain each more fantastic and ingenious than the last and if he ever did get beyond the borderland he would do the most amazing things sometimes it was the fighting instinct that would possess him sometimes the preaching and sometimes the comic or they might come in succession replacing each other so rapidly as to bewilder his companions intoxication brought all kinds of queer little peculiarities with it one of them was that he could walk or run perfectly straight but that there always came a time when he unconsciously returned upon his tracks and retraced his steps again this had a strange effect sometimes as in the instance which i am about to tell you very sober to outward seeming but in a frenzy within he went down to the station one night and stooping to the pigeon-hole he asked the ticket clerk in the suavest voice whether he could tell him how far it was to london the official put forward his face to reply when cullingworth drove his fist through the little hole with the force of a piston 
the clerk flew backwards off his stool and his yell of pain and indignation brought some police and railway men to his assistance they pursued cullingworth but he as active and as fit as a greyhound outraced them all and vanished into the darkness down the long straight street the pursuers had stopped and were gathered in a knot talking the matter over when looking up they saw to their amazement the man whom they were after running at the top of his speed in their direction his little peculiarity had asserted itself you see and he had unconsciously turned in his flight they tripped him up flung themselves upon him and after a long and desperate struggle dragged him to the police station he was charged before the magistrate next morning but made such a brilliant speech from the dock in his own defence that he carried the court with him and escaped with a nominal fine at his invitation the witnesses and the police trooped after him to the nearest hotel and the affair ended in universal whiskey and sodas well now if after all these illustrations i have failed to give you some notion of the man able magnetic unscrupulous interesting many-sided i must despair of ever doing so i'll suppose however that i have not failed and i will proceed to tell you my most patient of confidence something of my personal relations with cullingworth when i first made a casual acquaintance with him he was a bachelor at the end of a long vacation however he met me in the street and told me in his loud-voiced volcanic shoulder-slapping way that he had just been married at his invitation i went up with him then and there to see his wife and as we walked he told me the history of his wedding which was as extraordinary as everything else he did i won't tell it to you here my dear bertie for i feel that i have dived down too many side streets already but it was a most bustling business in which the locking of a governess into her room and the dying of cullingworth hair played prominent parts apropos of the latter he was never quite able to get rid of its traces and from this time forward there was added to his other peculiarities the fact that when the sunlight struck upon his hair at certain angles it turned it all iridescent and shimmering well i went up to his lodgings with him and was introduced to mrs cullingworth she was a timid little sweet-faced gray-eyed woman quiet-voiced and gentle-mannered you had only to see the way in which she looked at him to understand that she was absolutely under his control and that do what he might or say what he might he would always be the best thing to her she could be obstinate too in a gentle way dove-like sort of way but her obstinacy lay always in the direction of backing up his sayings and doings this however i was only to find out afterwards and at that my first visit she impressed me as being one of the sweetest little women that i had ever known they were living in the most singular style in a suite of four small rooms over a grocer's shop there was a kitchen a sitting-room and a fourth room which cullingworth insisted upon regarding as a most unhealthy apartment and a focus of disease though i am convinced that it was nothing more than the smell of cheeses from below which had given him the idea at any rate with his usual energy he had not only locked the room up but had gummed varnished paper over all the cracks of the door to prevent the imaginary contagion from spreading the furniture was the sparest possible there were i remember only two chairs in the sitting-room so that when a guest came 
and I think I was the only one, Cullingworth used to squat upon a pile of yearly volumes of the British Medical Journal in the corner. I can see him now levering himself up from his lowly seat, and striding about the room, roaring and striking with his hands, while his little wife sat mum in the corner, listening to him with love and admiration in her eyes. What did we care, any one of the three of us, where we sat or how we lived, when youth throbbed hot in our veins, and our souls were all aflame with the possibilities of life? I still look upon those bohemian evenings, in the bare room, amid the smell of the cheese, as being among the happiest that I have known. I was a frequent visitor to the Cullingworths, for the pleasure that I got was made the sweeter by the pleasure which I hoped that I gave. They knew no one, and desired to know no one, so that socially I seemed to be the only link that bound them to the world. I even ventured to interfere in the details of their little menage. Cullingworth had a fad at the time, that all the diseases of civilization were due to the abandonment of the open-air life of our ancestors, and as a corollary he kept his windows open day and night. As his wife was obviously fragile, and yet would have died before she would have uttered a word of complaint, I took it upon myself to point out to him that the cough from which she suffered was hardly to be cured so long as she spent her life in a draught. He scowled savagely at me for my interference, and I thought we were on the verge of a quarrel but it blew over, and he became more considerate in the matter of ventilation. Our evening occupations just about that time were of a most extraordinary character. You are aware that there is a substance, called waxy matter, which is deposited in the tissues of the body during the course of certain diseases. What this may be, and how it is formed, has been a cause for much bickering among pathologists. Cullingworth had strong views upon the subject holding that the waxy matter was really the same thing as the glycogen which is normally secreted by the liver. But it is one thing to have an idea, and another to be able to prove it. Above all, we wanted some waxy matter with which to experiment. But fortune favored us in the most magical way. The professor of pathology had come into possession of a magnificent specimen of the condition. With pride, he exhibited the organ to us in the classroom before ordering his assistant to remove it to the ice-chest, preparatory to its being used for microscopical work in the practical class. Cullingworth saw his chance, and acted on the instant. Slipping out of the classroom, he threw open the ice-chest, and rolled his ulster round the dreadful glistening mass, closed the chest again, and walked quietly away. I have no doubt that to this day the disappearance of that waxy liver is one of the most inexplicable mysteries in the career of our professor. That evening, and for many evenings to come, we worked upon our liver. For our experiments, it was necessary to subject it all to great heat in an endeavor to separate the nitrogenous cellular substance from the non-nitrogenous waxy matter. With our limited appliances, the only way we could think of was to cut it into fine pieces and cook it in a frying pan. So night after night, the curious spectacle might have been seen of a beautiful young woman and two very earnest young men, busily engaged in making these grim fricassees. Nothing came of all our work, for though Cullingworth considered that he had absolutely established his case, and wrote long screeds to the medical papers upon the subject, he was never apt at stating his views with his pen. 
and he left i am sure a very confused idea on the minds of his readers as to what it was that he was driving at again as he was a mere student without any letters after his name he got scant attention and i never heard that he gained over a single supporter at the end of the year we both passed our examinations and became duly qualified medical men the cullingworths vanished away and i never heard any more of them for he was a man who prided himself upon never writing a letter his father had formerly a very large and lucrative practice in the west of scotland but he died some years ago i had a vague idea founded upon some chance remark of his that cullingworth had gone to see whether the family name might still stand him in good stead there as for me i began as you will remember that i explained in my last by acting as assistant in my father's practice you know however that at its best it is not worth more than seven hundred pound a year with no room for expansion this is not large enough to keep two of us at work then again there are times when i can see that my religious opinions annoy the dear old man on the whole and for every reason i think that it would be better if i were out of this i applied for several steamship lines and for at least a dozen house surgeonships but there is as much competition for a miserable post with a hundred a year as if it were the viceroyship of india as a rule i simply got my testimonials returned without any comment which is the sort of thing that teaches a man humility of course it is very pleasant to live with the matter and my little brother paul is a regular trump i am teaching him boxing and you should see him put his tiny fists up and counter with his right he got me under the jaw this evening and i had to ask for poached eggs for supper and all this brings me up to the present time and the latest news it is that i had a telegram from cullingworth this morning after nine months silence it was dated from avonmouth the town where i had suspected that he had settled and it said simply come at once i have urgent need of you cullingworth of course i shall go by the first train to-morrow it may mean anything or nothing in my heart of hearts i hope and believe that old cullingworth sees an opening for me either as his partner or in some other way i always believed that he would turn up trumps and make my fortune as well as his own he knows that i am not very quick or brilliant i am fairly steady and reliable so that's what i have been working up to all along bertie that to-morrow i go to join cullingworth and that it looks as if there was to be an opening for me at last i gave you a sketch of him and his ways so that you may take an interest in the development of my fortune which you could not do if you did not know something of the man who was holding out his hand to me yesterday was my birthday and i was two-and-twenty years of age for two-and-twenty years have i swung around the sun and in all seriousness without a touch of levity and from the bottom of my soul i assure you that i have at the very present moment the very vaguest idea as to whence i have come from whither i am going or what i am here for it is not for want of inquiry or from indifference i have mastered the principles of several religions they have all shocked me by the violence which i should have to do to my reason to accept the dogmas of any of them their ethics are usually excellent so are the ethics of the common law of england but the scheme of creation upon which those ethics are built well it really is to me the most astonishing thing that i have seen in my short earthly pilgrimage that so many able men deep philosophers astute lawyers 
and clear-headed men of the world should accept such an explanation of the facts of life in the face of their apparent concurrence my own poor little opinion would not dare to do more than lurk at the back of my soul were it not that i take courage when i reflect that the equally eminent lawyers and philosophers of rome and greece were all agreed that jupiter had numerous wives and was fond of a glass of good wine mind my dear bertie i do not wish to run down your view or that of any other man we who claim toleration should be the first to extend it to others i am only indicating my own position as i have often done before and i know your reply so well can i hear your grave voice saying have faith your conscience allows you to well mine won't allow me i see so clearly that faith is not a virtue but a vice it is a goat which has been herded with a sheep if a man deliberately shut his physical eyes and refused to use them you would be as quick as any one in seeing that it was immoral and a treason to nature and yet you would counsel a man to shut that far more precious gift the reason and to refuse to use it in the most intimate question of life the reason cannot help in such a matter you reply i answer that to say so is to give up a battle before it is fought my reason shall help me and when it can help no longer i shall do without help it's late bertie and the fire's out and i'm shivering and you i'm very sure are heartily weary of my gossip and my heresies so adieu until my next end of chapter one recording by greg giordano Newport Ritchie, Florida.